book of Isaiah, chapter 44. And then we will read the answers of Lord's Day 8. I know it says 7 in the bulletin. It's Lord's Day 8 tonight. My mistake. Math was never my strong suit. So. Isaiah 44. Two readings tonight, Old Testament and New. And then, as you probably could have guessed, we'll be going to several different texts tonight as we discuss doctrine of the Trinity. Isaiah 44, verses six through eight. Let's hear from God's word. This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me What has happened since I established my ancient people, and what is yet to come? Yes, let him foretell what will come. Do not tremble, do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. Amen. And then the book of 2 John, which is the end of the New Testament. Second John, just one chapter of Second John, so we just say Second John verses one through eleven. This is John's second epistle, and perhaps to disguise the nature of the letter, he is uses the word lady there. Speaking of the church, we usually use feminine pronouns to talk of the church. And so that's what John is doing here in 2 John, verses 1 through 11, here once again from God's holy word. The elder, to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. 
Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Amen. Lord's Day 8, page 15, the back of our hymnal. Just two answers to say together. Lord's Day 8, question and answers 24 and 25. Speaking of the division of the creed and how the catechism works through it. So question 24, let's read the answer together. How are these articles divided into three parts? God the Father and our creation, God the Son and our deliverance, God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. Since there is but one God, why do you speak of three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because that is how God has revealed himself in his word. These three distinct persons are one true eternal God. Well, it is indeed a fundamental doctrine, the doctrine of the Trinity, and perhaps a bit of a commentary on the the nature of our biblical knowledge in this age. As uh, my alma mater tends to sometimes get into the news and in a bad way, uh, mixed up in the center of a story a few years ago, there's a professor at Wheaton College uh, who had put something out on the internet saying how uh, Christians and Muslims essentially worship the same God. They're both people of the book and um, there needs to be more solidarity between the Church of Jesus Christ and uh, the religion of, of Islam. And she was dismissed from her post at Wheaton and it became a huge controversy and she claimed that there were other things that played into it and really it was all about those claims that she had made. And what she was saying was essentially a very clear departure from what we see revealed very clearly in Scripture. And the posture that we are to have as believers, as biblical Christians, is to go to the Word of God and say, what are the things that God clearly reveals to us? And what remains to us, our responsibility is to accept that and to believe it, and to embrace it, and to live according to it. So you see this question pop up uh, a lot nowadays. Is the God of Muhammad the same God as the Father of Jesus Christ? And uh, like I said, perhaps a a bit of a commentary on the nature of our uh, biblical knowledge. Jesus says, and God's Word says in multiple places... Those who do not honor the Son do not honor the Father. Those who do not receive the Son in the way that He reveals Himself will not have the Father either. And 2 John says that as well. If you lose the teaching of Christ, you don't just lose Christ, you lose the Father. And so to continue in this teaching, which we know as the doctrine of the Trinity is of utmost importance. Of course, in the book of 2 John, the book of 1 John as well, we see that one of the great uh, controversies of the early church was the nature of Jesus Christ. And how do we embrace the truth that he is God and man? 
That was a, a struggle for many in the early church and why we see it stated so clearly and concisely in places like the Athanasian Creed. That's why we took time to say that tonight. And even the Nicene Creed, a wonderful exposition of the person of Jesus Christ. The Chalcedonian Creed as well, another great resource to look at. But what we find in Scripture, and that which is our responsibility to accept, and that which we accept as the Catholic religion, the Catholic faith, as the Athanasian Creed says it to us, the universal Christian faith is that there is one God, and this God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So very simply, that's what we're going to look at tonight. There is one God, this God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to believe in this doctrine, the Orthodox doctrine of the Trinity, is not only a doctrinal necessity, but a practical one as well. There are practical ways that the doctrine of the Trinity comes to bear upon our life and upon our faith and upon our walk. So first, there is one God. This is revealed very clearly in Scripture, the oneness of God and that God is the only God. It's important to keep in mind that as you, you, you see these texts in the Old Testament and how they put it forth so clearly, as you move to the New Testament, if you were to build some kind of a system where Jesus Christ was a God but not quite co-equal with the Father, it would, you would have to disregard all of this teaching from the Old Testament about there being one God, about God being completely refusing to share his glory with another. You need to keep that in mind as you work towards the New Testament. So as we begin in Isaiah chapter 44, thus says the Lord, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. There, is, there was no one before God and there will be no one after him. He is God alone. Not only is he God alone, but he is one. He is a unity. He is a simple being, as we call it in, in our doctrine. Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Or the Lord alone. The same idea there. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. The Lord is one. Jeremiah 10, the Lord is the true God. He is the living God. He is the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus shall you say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It's important to hear that when God says in Jeremiah that he alone is the one who made the heavens and the earth. And that's what gives him that claim to deity, to divinity. I have created it all. I am the maker of, heaven, of the heavens and the earth. It's important to keep that in mind as you go and look at what it says about Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And of course, we'll speak on that in just a few minutes. This God is alone worthy of glory. The God of Scripture, as he's revealed from the beginning. He is alone worthy of glory. Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God will not share his glory with another being. 
very clear. This God is to be believed in what he reveals. Because of his sovereignty, because of his lordship, as his creatures, we are to simply receive what he reveals and believe it. John 17, Jesus says in his high priestly prayer, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. God imparts his life as his creatures believe what he reveals. This God, because of who he is, is the one that we are to serve. Human beings are to serve him because of his position as God. 1 Kings chapter 18 story of Elijah and the clash of Yahweh versus Baal. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. God alone is the one who is worthy uh, to be served. And Deuteronomy 6 says that. The Lord is God. The Lord is one. Therefore, you shall love him, you shall serve him, you shall obey him. So God is the only God. He is unified, and this unity is to be applied to his nature. That's how we are to think of the nature of God and his divinity. He is always, eternally, infinite, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, and many other things. That's the Westminster Shorter Catechism. God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. So God is one. You move through the scriptures, and particularly when you get to the New Testament, and you have the revelation of Jesus Christ, who comes from heaven, as the Gospel of John says, and reveals the truth about himself. We even saw it in John chapter 8 tonight where the religious leaders of Israel are struggling with how to understand what Jesus is revealing. Because it seems like he's making all kinds of claims that he is divine. And so this God is the only God, but this God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So though one in nature, God is revealed as a plurality of distinct persons. One in nature, three in persons. And in all three persons of the Godhead, the divine nature perfectly subsists. I know I'm using some more technical language, but we have to when we speak of this glorious doctrine. In these three persons of the Godhead, the divine nature subsists perfectly. And it's exactly what we see in our Athanasian Creed, isn't it? It walks through it. All three uncreated. All three equally sharing in the glory of God. And you need, we need to hold on to that because oftentimes, especially when we read the Gospels, we get a bigger picture of the humanity of Christ. The one, and in his human nature, he of course submits to the will of the Father. And he uh, willingly falls under the authority of the Father according to his human nature. We need to understand that Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, is co-equal with the Father. Each person of the Godhead has the understanding and will and power of God. Whatever you would say about one person of the Trinity, in terms of their nature, you would say about all three. And that is the unified doctrine of the Trinity. The Father, 
Now, no one disputes the deity and the godhood of the Father in these historical issues and arguments. But one thing that we know about God is that he does not change. And so it is such that the Father must eternally have been Father. There is no point in history, no point in time, where he ever could have become Father. And that is why we speak of Jesus Christ as eternally begotten. If he ever became the Father of the Son at any point in time, then it would prove that he is not God. It would prove that he is not unchanging. It it would prove that he is not eternally unchangeable. Just that point of... Then we find, of course, that Jesus Christ himself is divine. I want to give you a few examples of where we see this. And one of the things that we see is that which is clearly asserted of God in the Old Testament. You can go, you find various scriptures where clearly you go and you read it and it's speaking about God himself. These are applied to Jesus Christ in the New Testament. So in Psalm 45, verse 6, it says this, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. And then in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, the author there, the book of Hebrews, is speaking about Jesus Christ as being superior to the angels, superior to the heavenly beings. And what he does is he applies that exact psalm to Jesus Christ. He says this, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. So you have God the Father looking to God the Son and calling him God. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So there you have David speaking of God, speaking to someone else. God says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And then we read in Matthew 22. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And so you know that Jesus is going to teach them here that he is the son of God, right? They said to Jesus, We believe the Christ is the son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Jesus is saying, I am superior to David, and I am the son of God. One really interesting one that perhaps you don't pick up on except from in-depth study. Isaiah chapter 6, where, of course, we know that passage very well. Isaiah is caught up into this vision of heaven, and he sees this heavenly worship and all the angels gathering around the throne, and they're eternally praising God, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah hits the deck, so to speak. He, he's thrown down. He says, I'm undone. I'm sinful. i I live, I'm a a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. John chapter 12, an amazing thing is uh, the evangelist there 
is speaking of the various things that Isaiah has said. And we read this in John 12. Jesus says, While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. And again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. And then here, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. So the evangelist, John, the apostle, is saying that Isaiah spoke of the Messiah because he was caught up into heaven and he saw the glory of the Messiah. He spoke of him. Isaiah, when he's caught up there, he sees the pre-incarnate Christ. He speaks of his glory and he says that he is the Lord of hosts. The New Testament also clearly shows Jesus to be divine and sharing the same substance and essence with the Father. John chapter 8, the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. John 10, I and the Father, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Why did the Jews want to stone Jesus when he said, I and the Father are one? Because he was blaspheming in their minds. They knew exactly what he was saying. You know, various cults, groups that say Jesus is a God, he is not the God. You take them right to these kinds of passages. If he were saying what, the, uh, what a, a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness would say Jesus is saying there, they would not have wanted to stone him in such a way. He claimed that he was one with the Father. When Thomas places his hand on the side of Jesus, what does he say? He says, my Lord and my God. Acts chapter 20, we read that Jesus Christ laid down his life for the church and it says that the blood of God was spilled. The blood of God was spilled as Jesus spilled his blood. Titus 2, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Old Testament says that God alone made all things. What does the New Testament say? The New Testament says that Jesus is the special agent of creation. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. Could that be said about Jesus if he were himself a created being? No, of course not. And so we read in, in the Gospels that there is a distinction in the offices of Christ. He submits to the Father's will. But that does not take away the equality that he has with the Father in his nature or in his essence. Think of a, a human son and father. The human son is commanded by God himself to submit to his father. But that does not mean 
that he is of less value or that his nature or essence is lesser than the Father. It's a distinction in offices, not a distinction of essence. The same could be true said of human marriage, Christian marriage, where the wife is said, commanded to submit to the husband, but it's not because she is of any less value or has a different nature or essence than the husband. It is a distinction of office. So Christ says that he submits to the Father's will. It does not mean that he is of a lesser nature than the Father. So we read John Owen, the great Puritan, who says this. And really, this is you take all of these things about Jesus Christ and you ask yourself, what is it that God is revealing to us about these things? What Would he really want to give us all of these scriptures in order to reveal to us anything other than Jesus Christ himself is God in the flesh. So Owen says this, What now can be required of our faith in this matter? In what words possibly could a divine revelation of the eternal power and godhood of the Son be made more plain and clear unto the sons of men? Or how could the truth of anything be more evidently expressed unto their minds? Then he says this, If we understand not the mind of God and intention of the Holy Spirit in this matter, we may utterly despair ever to come to an acquaintance with anything else that is expressed or to be expressed by words. He's saying, if this is not what God is saying in his word, that Jesus Christ is himself God, then we should despair of ever understanding anything in the Bible or anything that is revealed by words. Jesus Christ is divine. The Holy Spirit is divine as well. We can say the same thing about the scriptures. They reveal to us with clarity that the Holy Spirit is an eternally existing divine substance, the author of divine operations, the object of divine worship, that he is God blessed forever. Even from the beginning of the scriptures, Genesis 1 verse 2, we read that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The biblical text, the first that we hear of God is God the Spirit. Job 33, the Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. Remember what we learned about in the Old Testament. God alone is the creator of all things. And then we learn that the Spirit himself creates. That's because the creation, God, the the Father, creates in the Son and by the Spirit. It's a unified work of the Trinity. Acts chapter 5, one of the clearest revelations of the deity of the Holy Spirit. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Remember, Ananias sold a plot of land, gave money to the church. And then he says, you lied to the Holy Spirit. And then you have not lied to men, but to God. So lying to the Holy Spirit was lying to God. In 1 Corinthians 3... Paul says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So if God dwells in you and it's the spirit of God dwelling in you, that means that God, the whole, that the Holy Spirit must himself be God. So we find in scripture that the Holy Spirit is called God. He is an intelligent, voluntary, divine agent. He is the author and worker of all sorts of divine operations. He is to believe, to be believed in and may be sinned against. You could sin against the Holy Spirit. Two privileges given to God alone. 
One more thing that we just, and we're, we're, we're sort of going, having cursory uh, teaching on the Trinity tonight because we uh, only have so much time. But one more thing to think about is our baptism. And we're baptized into the triune name. We're baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And if God is unwilling to share his glory with another, if God alone is to be served, then how could we be baptized into three different gods? It would make absolutely no sense at all. This is the blessed doctrine, the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. It is worth our consideration. We should give ourselves to it. We should believe it and accept it as it's revealed in Scripture. It's also a practical doctrine. It's a practical doctrine. So a few comments on that as we close tonight. The first is the most practical issue of all. Only those who confess and believe the Trinity are saved. That's what we we hear about in our Athanasian Creed. Only those who confess and believe the Trinity are saved. And there's nothing more practical than our eternal destiny. There's nothing more practical than that. But the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity as revealed in Scripture, increases our worship of God, our awe of God, and our love of God. The way that it reveals God more fully to us and teaches us about His being, His works, His character and what he is passionate about doing in his world, it increases our love for him, our awe of him, and our worship of him. There's a great Puritan prayer just called God the Trinity. I'll share with you a few lines. Three in one, one in three, the God of my salvation, heavenly Father, blessed Son, eternal Spirit, I adore you as one being, one essence, one God in three distinct persons for bringing sinners to know you intimately and to be members of your kingdom. O Father, you have loved me and sent Jesus to redeem me. O Jesus, you have loved me and took on my human nature, shed your own blood to wash away my sins. Holy Spirit, you have loved me and entered my heart, implanted there eternal life, revealed to me the glories of Jesus. Three persons and one God, I bless you and I praise you for love so unmerited, so unspeakable, so wondrous, so mighty to save the lost and raise them to glory. The doctrine of God in the religion of Islam is that God is sort of completely unknowable. He's completely removed from us. He uh, he is very aloof. And the Christian doctrine of the Trinity is that God loves you and he has worked out salvation for you. And because of that, to know God as three persons and to see his work as Father and Son and Holy Spirit united to redeem you and to forgive you of sin, it is that doctrine that he gives to us that we might love him more, that we might be more in awe of him, that we might worship him more. Trinitarian worship, what a blessing it is to sing those songs, immortal, invisible, God, only wise, holy, holy, holy. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. But then, the love and the fellowship of the Trinity teaches us to recognize our need for divine and human fellowship. We are made in the image of God, and God himself has been eternally, in this blessed communion of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, perfectly loving one another, perfectly in communion and fellowship with one another, since before time began. And we image that God, and because of that, 
we need to be rightly in communion with God himself, and then we need to be in fellowship with other people. There is a longing deeply inside of us, rooted in the image of God, that we have a need for being with others and for connecting with others. It's exactly what we learned about this morning and what God commands his church to be, a church that is unified in conviction and in affection. And so that's the last thing, that the work of the Trinity turns us outward, or the, sorry, the, the, the doctrine of the Trinity and knowing the work of our triune God turns us outward to love and serve others in fellowship and communion as we see the eternal giving of one of the persons to another in the Godhead and the perfect love that they share and as we think about the need that we have as images of God for fellowship and communion to see what God has done to redeem his people and the forgiveness that he has shown forth. It turns us outwards to be those kinds of people, little images of God in the church of God, who seek to glorify God by being exactly who he commands us to be. He is not a, a God who is aloof and removed from us and completely unknowable. He's revealed himself to us as this blessed communion of three persons, eternally loving and eternally serving. If we worship this God, what does it mean for how we treat each other? If we worship this God, what does it mean for how we are to approach life and, and, and seek to serve others and seek to have others come to know this God? doctrine of the Trinity is oftentimes maligned as horribly scholastic and way too much in the weeds of the text of Scripture. And we spent a lot of time tonight thinking about some of those specific things. But it is a blessedly practical doctrine. There's perhaps no doctrine that is more practical that comes to bear upon your life. This is who God is. And we are to reflect Him, to obey Him, to worship him, to be thankful for what he has done in Christ, sending him to die for us, giving and pouring out the Holy Spirit to build us up. This is our God. Worship him and love him, serve him, and believe in him always. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessing of these truths and these words. We give you all the glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.